welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Great week of cases. Some short and not so friendly, and others absurdly complicated with lots of stuff packed in. I've tried to mix up the cases for the brain to take a rest and to accommodate. And I'm going to start off with a case with quotes that are just plain fun. Speak to you all again in 2022. First is Nasimba v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on December 22, 2021. This is a mic drop of a case about asylum with quotes for days. Mr. Nasimba is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and joined the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, or UDPS, in 2011. At the time, it was Congo's largest political party and the opposition party to the president, Joseph Kabila. But, quote, when it became apparent that the head of the UDPS, Felix Tshisekedi and Kabila, were conspiring to ensure that Tshisekedi would succeed Kabila in the upcoming 2018 elections, Nisimba left the UDPS, end quote. He instead co-founded the group Liberté Congolese with a man named Fabrice to oppose both Kabila and Tshisekedi. Tshisekedi indeed became president, and Mr. Nisimba worked to oppose him. But after much opposition work, Fabrice was arrested and disappeared, and officers came to arrest Mr. Nasimba as well. He fled and police summons were issued against him. Mr. Nasimba came to the U.S. shortly thereafter and was warned by contacts who remained in the Congo never to return. Mr. Nasimba testified to all of this and more in his asylum hearing in immigration court, but the IJ denied asylum, despite finding Mr. Nasimba credible. The BIA affirmed. The Third Circuit disagreed strongly. First, even if a non-citizen doesn't have a subjective fear of persecution, and Mr. Nasimba does here, asylum is still warranted where country condition evidence shows that there is a pattern or practice of persecution against similarly situated individuals. 
Usually that really applies to big groups of people, but here the Third Circuit appears to be holding that a pattern or practice claim can be based on a relatively small number, stating that, quote, the record also established a pattern or practice of persecution against those similarly situated to Nasimba. Many of Nasimba's fellow political protesters were shot, and the person who co-founded Nasimba's political organization with him was arrested and then disappeared into the bowels of a Congolese prison, end quote. And how about this quote? Quote, It is beyond dispute that the Democratic Republic of Congo has a history, pattern, and practice of persecuting political objectors. End quote. That is quite the quote for Congolese political asylum cases. So that's just the baseline country condition evidence that the Third Circuit believes applicable. But Mr. Nasimba clearly also had a well-founded fear of persecution based on his own experiences, contrary to the IJ and BIA's finding. The Third Circuit noted that it was simply uncontested below that the Congolese police were looking for Mr. Nasimba due to his political activities, and that his co-activist was disappeared. The court believes the BIA reached a, quote, bizarre conclusion, end quote, to the contrary, by cherry-picking the record and speculating based on nothing. For example, quote, the BIA's reasoning would require someone who becomes a target of a repressive regime to shelter in place and actually be arrested, and then hope for an impossible escape before fear of future persecution would become objectively reasonable, end quote. To say the standard is, of course, to reject it. According to the court, the BIA tried to dissect all instances of harm and fears individually, rather than cumulatively, as the law requires. As such, the Third Circuit believes the BIA's decision, quote, more akin to the argument of an advocate than the impartial analysis of a quasi-judicial agency, end quote. The Third Circuit made clear in italics, quote, evidence of physical harm was not required to establish fear of future persecution, end quote. And that goes for past persecution, too, quote, Physical harm is never required to establish past persecution or a well-founded fear of future persecution, end quote. Keep it coming. Okay, I will. Quote, merely stating such an absurdity demonstrates how illogical and impractical such a requirement would be, end quote. Similarly, it didn't matter that Mr. Nasimba's family members hadn't been arrested because they weren't political like him. And Mr. Nasimba's hiding at his aunt's house nearly 400 miles away and remaining undetected by bribing officials and using a different name, quote, merely reinforces the evidence of the corrupt nature of the regime, end quote. Relying on the very helpful Akusong v. Bar Ninth Circuit decision discussed on episode 16 and other cases from throughout the circuits, quote, remaining in hiding is not the same as safely relocating within a country, end quote. Plus, as the Third Circuit pointed out, and as you could in your own cases, Mr. Nasimba was paying an astronomical amount of money in bribes when compared to the income levels in the Congo. Quote, We know of no authority that interprets safely relocate as a synonym for relocate. End quote. Suffice it to say, the Third Circuit totally believes Mr. Nasimba is due relief. New favorite case to rely on for pretty much every element of political asylum. Congratulations, Valentina A. Brown of Dwayne Morris, LLP, for Petitioner. Gonna just keep going with the quotes. (music) 
In a footnote, the Third Circuit takes great umbrage at the BIA's reliance on the fact that the Congolese police only issued summons for his arrest and appearance at police stations, rather than actual arrest warrants. Quote, We have no idea what authority the BIA relies upon in assuming a legal distinction between a summons and a warrant under Congolese law. It is surprising and disappointing that the BIA would believe it notable that a regime that shoots and jails opponents does not bother to inform people why they are to report at police headquarters, end quote. And when IJs or DHS lament the fact that asylum seekers lack direct evidence from family who might have remained behind, quote, it must also be remembered that family members who remain subject to oppressive regimes may themselves be in danger if they attempt to communicate with one who has fled the country, end quote. To end while I'm still ahead like the Third Circuit did, quote, a refugee who reaches our borders need not bear the scars or disfigurement or mutilation to establish an objectively reasonable fear of returning home, end quote. And that is Nsimba, the Attorney General of the U.S. Sticking with the Third Circuit, we have Yassin, the Attorney General of the U.S., published on December 20th, 2021. This case is about the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, and motions to reopen. Mr. Yassin is from Pakistan and entered the United States without authorization in 2000. He was immediately placed in removal proceedings and applied for asylum and related relief, which was denied by an immigration judge and the BIA. DHS chose not to remove Mr. Yassin and, still in the U.S. in 2016, he married a U.S. citizen through a religious ceremony in the United States. The couple had a daughter in 2017 who suffers from severe developmental delays. Then, shortly after the daughter's birth, Mr. Yassin's spouse, quote, regularly began subjecting him to psychological abuse and extreme cruelty, often using their child as a means of controlling him, end quote. Later that year, Mr. Yassin filed a Form I-360 with USCIS for classification as an abused spouse under the misnamed Violence Against Women Act. USCIS approved that application two and a half years later in December 2019, meaning that, but for the very old final order of removal, Mr. Yassin can adjust to LPR status. So, Mr. Yassin filed a motion to reopen with the Board of Immigration Appeals, the last court that had jurisdiction over his case, asking them to reopen and remand so he could adjust to lawful permanent resident status. Although Mr. Yassin was well over the filing deadline for a motion to reopen, including even the extended and special one-year post-final order deadline for VAWA-based motions, the VAWA statute will waive the deadline for abused spouses if the BIA finds that the denial of the motion will cause extraordinary circumstances or extreme hardship to the non-citizen's United States citizen or LPR child. And that very kind VAWA statute is INA Section 240C7C-IV-III-I. And so, of course, that's what Mr. Yassin argued here, that his young daughter would suffer extreme hardship without him, and if the BIA didn't grant his motion to reopen and permit him to apply for adjustment of status, quote, due to her medical diagnosis and his active role in her treatment, end quote. And, of course, his spouse's lack of care. The BIA denied the motion. And while sympathetic to his claims, the Third Circuit affirmed, finding that it lacked jurisdiction to review the issue because it determined the issue purely discretionary. Vowel motions to reopen must be filed within a year of the final order. 
But as I just discussed, the BIA has discretion to waive that one-year deadline based on an extreme hardship showing. But relying on the Supreme Court's analysis in Gukana v. Holder and a variety of circuit courts, the Third Circuit held that the decision to waive or not to waive the one-year deadline was a discretionary decision foreclosed from review by the ever-pesky INA Section 242-A2Bii. Maybe, the court reasoned, it could review the issue if Mr. Yassin brought a sufficiently legal challenge, perhaps that the BIA applied the wrong extreme hardship standard, but Mr. Yassin didn't do so here. And as to the BIA's refusal to exercise its sua sponte authority and reopen proceedings on its own, well, there's a lot of case law saying that there, too, circuits lack jurisdiction. Therefore, despite being recognized as an abused spouse who would otherwise have a path to a green card, Mr. Yassin remains subject to a final order of removal. And in case you're wondering... Why did Mr. Yassin need the VAWA petition to adjust to LPR status? After all, he was married to a U.S. citizen, albeit an abusive one. And an approved I-360 does the same thing as an approved spousal I-130. It provides an immediate path to adjustment. The reason is likely threefold. One, the VAWA motion to reopen expressly and more favorably permits the BIA to waive the filing deadline as compared to a normal motion to reopen. Two, a VAWA petition may be more compelling for sua sponte reopening purposes. And three, adjustment of status under the VAWA doesn't require inspection and admission, whereas adjustment through an I-130 under INA Section 245A does. This last fact is particularly important, as it appears that Mr. Yassin initially entered the U.S. without inspection and admission, making VAWA adjustment his only path to a green card in the United States. And that is Yassin v. Attorney General of the U.S. Moving on, we have Ramirez Medina v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 22, 2021. This is a case about criminal bars to cancellation of removal. Mr. Ramirez Medina is from Mexico and entered the United States unlawfully in 1996. Many years later, and over a two-year period, he was convicted in total five times of DUI and driving with a suspended license offenses. DHS initiated removal proceedings. And in removal proceedings, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. Problem is, non-citizens are barred from even applying if they have, quote, been convicted of an offense under INA Section 212A2, 237A2, or 237A3, end quote. That first statute referenced, INA Section 212A2, covers most, if not all, of the criminal-based inadmissibility provisions. And one of those provisions, INA Section 212A2B, makes inadmissible a non-citizen with, quote, multiple criminal convictions, end quote, where the non-citizen was sentenced to at least five years of confinement in the aggregate. That's what DHS alleged barred Mr. Ramirez Medina from cancellation of removal, based on his DUI and suspended license convictions. Mr. Ramirez Medina retorted with a clever argument, that because the cancellation barring statute uses the phrase, quote, an offense, end quote, it can't include the multiple criminal conviction inadmissibility provision, because then that wouldn't be an offense. It's multiple offenses, right? And I mean, it's not crazy. The Supreme Court put a lot of weight on the word a 
in Niz Chavez. And so the argument goes, quote, because the statutory disqualification is phrased in the singular, his multiple offenses do not trigger ineligibility, end quote. The Ninth Circuit didn't agree. Relying on prior precedent in a similar context, the Ninth Circuit held that when the Immigration Act references disqualifying statutes, it's referring to the, quote, disqualifying events described under the cross-reference provisions, end quote, rather than the inadmissibility statute as a whole. The use of the singular word, an offense, doesn't change the analysis because, and get this, quote, the Dictionary Act instructs that for any act of Congress, unless the context indicates otherwise, words importing the singular include and apply to several persons, parties, or things, end quote. Not gonna lie, that's a pretty spot-on counter-argument. And apparently this decision aligns with the BIA's own decision in the matter of Pina Galindo and the Fifth Circuit's published affirmance of that decision. Finally, it appears that on petition for review, Mr. Ramirez Medina argued that actually, the record didn't show that he had the five-year confinement, the other element required to make him inadmissible and therefore ineligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal. But as I wrote that sentence out in the outline, I knew what was coming next. In the decision Parade of E. Wilkinson discussed on episode 45 of the podcast, the Supreme Court made clear that where, as with non-LPR cancellation of removal relief, the non-citizen has the burden, factual ambiguity is weighed against the non-citizen, not the government. Mr. Ramirez Medina, therefore, is not eligible for cancellation of removal and lost his case. And that is Ramirez Medina v. Garland. Next up is Arguero Romero v. DHS, published by the 11th Circuit on December 20th, 2021. Hope you cherished that short one because this one's a wild ride. And that seems to be more and more often the case with the 11th Circuit decisions these days. This case arises in district court, but deep down, it's about just what is a deportation. Miss Arguero Romero is from Guatemala, entered the United States without authorization in 1993, and sought asylum with the former INS. Her application was denied and she was placed in deportation proceedings in 95, where she sought asylum again, as was her right. But before her final immigration court hearing, she just left the U.S. So the IJ ordered her deported in absentia at that hearing. Ms. Arguero Romero re-entered the United States unlawfully in around 2015 and filed an application for a stay of removal with ICE, which ICE actually granted and placed her under supervised release, meaning she had to check in with ICE periodically but was eligible for work authorization. Supervised release places various restrictions on non-citizens, including travel restrictions. But in 2019, ICE decided that no more stays would be granted and sought to enforce the 1995 final order of deportation. But, quote, because Romero had left the country before the 1995 order was issued, the government assumed that it had never been validly executed, remained effective, and didn't need to be reinstated. End quote. Put another way, ICE was taking the position that it was enforcing this deportation order for the first time, not the second time, as occurs with reinstatement. Already complicated, or perhaps for that reason, Ms. Argueta Romero sued ICE in federal district court to prevent ICE from enforcing that 1995 order, making quite the argument, quote, 
She argued that she had self-executed the 1995 order when she departed the country shortly before its issuance, and, accordingly, that the order was no longer operative, end quote. Therefore, so the argument went, quote, without reinstating the order, the government couldn't lawfully supervise or deport her, end quote. Her complaint traveled in two primary forms, as immigration complaints often do, quote, she brought a writ of habeas corpus and declaratory and injunctive relief under 28 U.S.C. Section 2241, end quote. The district court dismissed the complaint. And the 11th Circuit ultimately affirmed the district court judge, but not before issuing some rulings very helpful to non-citizens. First, as always, because I'm a good law student, jurisdiction. Habeas relief is only available to individuals deemed in custody. Ms. Argueta Romero was never in immigration detention or anything like that, so was she in custody for habeas purposes? She was, according to the 11th Circuit, due to the conditions of her ICE supervised release. Supreme Court precedent makes clear that custody doesn't just include physical custody, and in the 11th, the term is defined liberally, and requires only showing that, quote, they are subject to a significant restraint on their liberty that is not shared by the general public, end quote. Here, the conditions of the ICE supervised release are sufficiently restrictive. Indeed, it appears that the 11th Circuit believes that ICE's plan of action alone, requiring that Ms. Argueta Romero depart the U.S. by a date certain, in and of itself satisfies the in-custody requirement for habeas jurisdiction. Put another way, it would seem, this case provides jurisdiction to challenge all ICE decisions to remove someone who's been on supervised release, provided, of course, you've got the legal arguments to win. But the jurisdiction is there. The 11th Circuit also rejected a common government argument on jurisdiction. INA Section 242A5 states that review of final orders of removal can't begin in district court, but rather they need to travel from the IJ to the BIA and then to the circuit. The government argued that, therefore, the district court and circuit court lacked jurisdiction to hear this case. But the 11th Circuit held that that's not what's happening here. Long-standing 11th Circuit precedent makes clear that, quote, a challenge to the existence of a removal order is different from a claim seeking judicial review of such an order, end quote. It doesn't matter that the removal order eventually came into effect. Ms. Argueta Romero is arguing that the removal order doesn't control what's about to happen to her. She's not challenging it on the merits. And that gets around INA Section 242A5. So she can make the argument, and that's the good. On to the bad. Kind of. All parties agree that ICE can't, quote, rely on an already executed removal order to deport a non-citizen who has illegally re-entered the country, end quote. They must reinstate that final order first. ICE didn't do so here, so if the final order has been executed, ICE erred. Unfortunately for Ms. Aguero Romero, the 11th Circuit held that ICE didn't have to reinstate the final order because Ms. Aguero Romero did not, in fact, self-execute her deportation order all those years ago. And because it wasn't ever executed, it can simply be enforced now without ICE having to take any other action. Why, you ask? Well, to take out all the legalese I'm about to say, it's because Ms. Argueta Romero left before the final order of deportation was even issued. So how can she have executed it? But that's not why you listen to the podcast. With the legalese, it all comes down to a reading of the definition of being deported under INA Section 101G. 
and Miss Argueta Romero put up quite the intelligent statutory argument. So much so that the 11th Circuit agreed that the statute is ambiguous as to whether it applies to people like Miss Argueta Romero who leave before a deportation or removal order is issued. That ambiguity finding alone creates a circuit split with the 5th and 7th Circuits. And those decisions in the 5th and the 7th would have actually been favorable to Miss Argueta Romero's unique argument, because again, if she's been deported, ICE needs to reinstate the final order to take action. But as I mentioned, the 11th Circuit ultimately did not hold that Miss Argueta Romero executed her deportation order way back when. And to understand the final reason for that, I need to dive deeper into ambiguity. See, usually once a statute is deemed ambiguous, as the 11th Circuit is doing here, Chevron deference comes into play. However, here, the 11th Circuit recognized that whether someone has been deported before has a direct connection to criminal law, specifically illegal reentry under 8 U.S.C. 1326. And quote, When Congress speaks in unclear or indefinite terms about what conduct is criminal, such that the governing statute is genuinely ambiguous, we must construe that statute in favor of criminal defendants, end quote. Therefore, applying the rule in a way favorable to criminal defendants, the court construed the statute in a manner that would result in less convictions, which is paradoxically against Miss Argueta Romero. Put another way, if she hasn't been deported under the immigration statute, she can't be convicted under 8 U.S.C. Section 1326 for illegal reentry after deportation, because Section 1326 requires that the individual have been deported, excluded, or removed as a predicate to conviction when they come back. But if she hasn't been deported, as the 11th Circuit is saying is the case, then ICE can enforce that 1995 order without needing to reinstate it now. So Ms. Argueta Romero loses. But to be clear, all non-citizens in Section 1326 criminal proceedings like Ms. Argueta Romero win, unless contrary circuit precedent holds otherwise. So it's potentially a win for thousands of future, criminally charged, Ms. Argueta Romeros. And remember, DOJ was arguing for that position here. So remind them, criminal practitioners in similar 1326 proceedings nationwide, unless foreclosed by contrary precedent. So that's a lot. Shout out to my friend Anthony Dominguez and David Garcia of Prada Urizar on the partial win for non-citizens everywhere, even if your client may not get the benefit. With this and the last one y'all gave me, the FARA v. U.S. Attorney General decision discussed on episode 72, I'm coming to fear published decisions from your firm. Utmost respect. And I got a bit more. You might be asking yourself, as I did, why the big fight? Can't ICE just have alternatively reinstated the final order and have been done with it all? Well, having run my guess by esteemed counsel, my suspicions appear correct. ICE officers deciding this matter during the Trump administration believed that if they were simply executing a final order that hadn't been executed yet, they didn't need to provide Ms. Argueta Romero with a credible fear interview, because credible fear interviews occur pre-removal proceedings. And they also believe that they didn't need to provide her with a reasonable fear interview, because those only occur after reinstatement. So ICE was trying to remove Ms. Argueta Romero without providing her a path to have her current fear of return to Guatemala adjudicated. 
Next, and as Mr. Dominguez graciously pointed out to me, some of the arguments here had the MPP, or Remain in Mexico, program in mind. Unfortunately, after this decision, it would appear in the 11th Circuit that where an MPP non-citizen is ordered removed in absentia, so necessarily outside the U.S., and then when they unlawfully enter the U.S., they will not have an executed order of removal and can be summarily removed based on the MPP final order without ICE having to provide them a reasonable or credible fear interview. There might be Nez Chavez motion to reopen type arguments based on deficient NTAs akin to Rodriguez v. Garland, but not great for MPP opponents. Flip side of all that, MPP non-citizens ordered removed in absentia and who enter unlawfully appear not to be subject to criminal 1326 prosecution in the 11th Circuit, even if they are in the 5th and the 7th Circuits. And for that reason, the same argument that Ms. Argueta Romero made here should win in the 5th and the 7th for MPP non-citizens ordered removed in absentia and who enter unlawfully. ICE must either reinstate the final order, thereby providing a reasonable fear interview, or NTA them again. Hopefully your heads aren't spinning. Because I'm going back to Chevron, and to reiterate, the 11th Circuit recognized the connection between the immigration statute it was adjudicating and criminal law provisions, and so, before even talking about how the agency had interpreted the statute in the past, the 11th Circuit stated that the analysis, quote, begins with lenity, end quote. That's huge. So try at all costs to connect your immigration provision statutory interpretation argument to a criminal statute whenever you can, so that you too can get some lenity. And that is Argueta Romero, the DHS. How'd you like all that? Next up is Rodriguez Jimenez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 21st, 2021. This is a short case about the due process required in immigration court. Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez is a young man from Mexico who appears to have grown up in the U.S., but in 2015, pled guilty to unlawful flight and eluding police and driving under the influence. He also had some other convictions, and so, in removal proceedings, he applied only for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. As the basis, Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez asserted in his asylum application that his cousin Mario told him that when Mario was not home in 2012, hitmen for a cartel had forcefully entered Mario's home in Altar, Sonora, Mexico, and pointed guns at his wife and children, demanding that they give up Mario. Mario and his family fled for the U.S., and also in 2012, another relative was kidnapped and dismembered. Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez, a young man like the ones the cartels target, fears the cartels himself. But during his immigration court hearing, apparently, Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez forgot Mario's last name and the names and ages of his children. Also, he said that actually Mario didn't tell him about the cartel incident, another family member did. Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez's mother testified and appears to have guessed a bit, giving a year for the Mario incident that was different from what Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez said himself. The IJ asked follow-up questions, and then, noting the quote, hearsay on top of hearsay, end quote, inconsistencies, and speculative nature of the claims, the IJ denied protection. The BIA affirmed, although not on credibility because it appears that the BIA believes that the IJ violated the Ninth Circuit's decision in Ren v. Holder when the IJ didn't give Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez an opportunity to explain the inconsistencies. That's me reading the tea leaves on an otherwise brisk decision. Rather, the BIA held that Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez's fear that he'd more likely than not be tortured was just too speculative. 
and the Ninth Circuit affirmed. It held that the IJ and the BIA did sufficiently address Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez's evidence in support of his claim. To withstand review on such a challenge, quote, what is required is merely that it considers the issues raised and announces its decision in terms sufficient to enable a reviewing court to perceive that it is heard and thought and not merely reacted, end quote. The underlying decisions from the IJ and BIA met that standard here. As to the straight due process challenge, which circuits reviewed de novo, the Ninth Circuit held that at a minimum, Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez couldn't establish the prejudice required to succeed even assuming a due process violation had occurred. Even if the BIA should have remanded to allow Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez an opportunity to explain the inconsistencies, the court reasoned, quote, the record does not compel the conclusion that Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez demonstrated a greater than 50% chance of torture with the acquiescence of the Mexican government, irrespective of any testimonial inconsistencies or lack of corroboration, end quote. Rather, the Ninth Circuit believed Mr. Rodriguez Jimenez's fears were more of generalized violence, which does not satisfy the cat. So the Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA. And that is Rodriguez Jimenez v. Garland. With that mental break, I present to you Walcott v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on December 22, 2021. I thought I'd end with a long and complicated one about drugs and CIMTs. Need I say more? Yes, I must. Miss Walcott is a lawful permanent resident from Jamaica who, over 10 years after becoming an LPR, was convicted of soliciting to possess for sale less than 2 pounds of marijuana in violation of Arizona Revised Statute Sections 13-1002, 13-3405A2, and 13-3405B4 which I will refer to as the A2 and B4 convictions. Shortly after that, she was convicted of offering to transport less than 2 pounds of marijuana for sale in violation of Arizona Revised Statute Sections 13-3405A4 and B10, which I'll refer to as the A4 and B10 offenses. So to recap, we've got possession for sale of less than 2 pounds in violation of A2 and B4, and offering to transport for sale less than 2 pounds in violation of A4 and B10. Off to a great start. An IJ found Ms. Walcott removable as an LPR convicted of two or more CIMTs under INA Section 237A2AII, and then denied her application for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA for similar reasons. She's been convicted of CIMTs. This case, therefore, all comes down to whether the convictions are CIMTs, because if she doesn't have two CIMTs, she's not removable and gets to keep her green card. The analysis, of course, involves a categorical approach. Does Ms. Walcott's state criminal offense match the definition of a federal removability provision, in this case, a crime involving moral turpitude? And actually, the Ninth Circuit focused on the second conviction, offering to transport for sale less than two pounds of marijuana in violation of A4 and B10. Now, under the BIA's 1997 decision in Matter of Corn, drug trafficking offenses are generally CIMTs. But the Ninth Circuit isn't so sure about that decision anymore. More on that in a bit. And in any event, the Ninth Circuit distinguished Corn because it involved cocaine and a different statute. The Ninth Circuit also distinguished its own 2007 decision in Barragan-Lopez v. Mukasey for two reasons. First, 
That case involved a B4 conviction, not a B10, meaning that the statute at issue in 2007 necessarily required less than 4 pounds of marijuana, rather than less than 2 pounds of marijuana. And that's important, as we'll get to in a bit. But more importantly, that case involved an Arizona statute that clearly only criminalized possession for sale. Here, by contrast, Ms. Walcott's conviction, under A4 and B10, criminalizes possession for sale and two other offenses, quote, that do not necessarily involve trafficking of marijuana, importation, and transfer, end quote. That's important, because it seems that the Ninth Circuit believes that whether a controlled substance offense is a CIMT may turn on whether it necessarily involves drug trafficking, rather than possession or transport for one's own use. Here, Ms. Walcott's second conviction under A4 and B10 did not. That would appear to make the conviction broader than the definition of a CIMT being employed by the Ninth Circuit in this case. For example, Arizona state case law makes clear that, quote, importation could be accomplished by driving into the state of Arizona with a small amount of marijuana in the car that is for personal use, not for sale, end quote. And that's not morally turpitudinous, says the Ninth Circuit. Quote, similarly, transfer could be accomplished by someone sharing marijuana with a friend without being paid, end quote. Also, not turpitudinous. All of that means that, again, Section 13-3405A4 is not necessarily a CIMT. The transport or import of marijuana for sale very well might be turpitudinous, but the statute also criminalizes simply transporting or importing less than two pounds without any intent or attempt to sell. According to the Ninth Circuit, those latter crimes are not necessarily morally turpitudinous, even if it involves nearly two pounds. That means, therefore, that an A4 conviction can't even potentially be a CIMT unless it's divisible. That is, unless the transport and import for sale provisions are separate crimes under the statute from simply transporting or importing for one's own use or to share. Still with me? The Ninth Circuit held that yes, actually, the statute is divisible into separate crimes, and so that's pretty bad for Ms. Walcott. The mere import into a state versus, say, transport for sale are written in the disjunctive in the statute, indicating that the statute criminalizes separate offenses. Put another way, transport versus transport for sale are elements rather than mere means of committing the offense. Arizona state case law supports this conclusion, as does Ms. Walcott's own conviction document, which indicates that she expressly pled guilty to transport for sale. Okay. So the modified categorical approach can be applied to determine whether the portion of Ms. Walcott's A4 offense is a CIMT. And actually, we already just determined that she was convicted of offering to transport for sale less than two pounds of marijuana. So it's got the trafficking element, indicating that it's morally turpitudinous. So Ms. Walcott's in trouble. But recall, Ms. Walcott was convicted under A4 and B10, the statute applicable when less than two pounds of marijuana is involved. Now, admittingly, I've heard, nearly two pounds of marijuana is a lot to transport and offer to sell. So if that was the end of it, I bet the Ninth Circuit would find it turpitudinous. But it's not the end of it. Remember, the statute broadly criminalizes less than two pounds. So what does that mean? Well, Arizona has applied the law to prosecute the sale of two or three joints. Therefore, the least criminal conduct outlawed by B-10, the less than two pounds statute, is actually exceedingly small. And because the specific amount possessed, be it B-2 joints or 1.9 pounds, 
is not divisible under B10, whether Ms. Walcott is removable comes down to whether offering to transport two or three joints of marijuana, the least culpable conduct criminalized, is a CIMT. Doesn't matter whether Ms. Walcott offered to transport 1.99 pounds of marijuana for sale or not. Categorical approach, everybody. Put that way, and reviewing the least culpable conduct, the Ninth Circuit held that no, offering to sell two or three joints is not morally turpitudinous. It's not sufficiently base or vile, nor does it, as often stated, quote, shock society's conscience, end quote. While drug trafficking crimes have been historically understood to be CIMTs, the cases that have so understood usually involve cocaine, heroin, or other narcotics, much more serious drugs to the court, and certainly more serious than two or three joints. As the court explained, CIMTs are, after all, about what society believes beyond the pale, and quote, contemporary societal attitudes towards marijuana, end quote, are changing. Heck, in November 2020, Arizona voters passed a proposition to make it lawful to purchase an ounce or less of marijuana. At the end of the day, just what is or is not a CIMT is supposed to change over time as society changes. Think, as the Ninth Circuit did, old sodomy case law and the effect of Lawrence v. Texas. Quote, a determination that an offense is base, vile, or depraved or contrary to accepted moral standards depends on the accepted moral standards or prevailing views at the time. End quote. Because society's views of marijuana are changing, the CIMT definition should change with it. What a case. Oh, and by the way, the Ninth Circuit notes in a footnote that the same rationale goes for Ms. Walcott's first conviction, too, for solicitation to possess for sale less than two pounds of marijuana in violation of sections A2 and B4. Even though that conviction is nearly the same statute addressed by the Ninth Circuit 14 years ago in Barragan-Lopez, the Barragan-Lopez case involved less than four pounds, rather than the less than two pound provision at issue here. And remember, the less than two pound provision can be two or three joints. So Ms. Walcott has no CIMTs, much less two, and is not removable. Judge Burzon concurred, as she has many times in a row now, to make clear that she believes the term CIMT unconstitutionally vague. Judge Collins dissented. Congratulations, Alton Nana, for petitioner. Long and complicated case, but I can't go without noting two more things in 2021. First, cite to this decision in your CIMT petitions for review for the proposition that circuits shouldn't be deferring to the BIA's definition of a CIMT, such as for drug trafficking crimes in matter of Kern, because, quote, the BIA's general definition of moral turpitude fails to particularize the term in any meaningful way, end quote. Put another way, the BIA's CIMT definition seems to often change slightly based on the type of statute being adjudicated, so why should circuits defer to the BIA's CIMT definition? Probably also one reason that Judge Burzon believes the concept unconstitutionally vague. Also, and not to rain on anyone's parade, but I'm not sure why DHS didn't charge Ms. Walcott as removable under INA Section 237A2B. I'm sure I've missed something. No need to look into it. Whatever. Strong argument that race judicata applies at this point in the Ninth Circuit, because the charge could have been brought and wasn't before. See Alma Tareb v. Holder, published by the Ninth Circuit in 2009. And that is Walcott v. Garland. So there you have it. 
you're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.